Chapter thirty three of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter thirty three. Small slights, neglect, unmixed perhaps with hate, make up in number what they want in weight. These and a thousand griefs minute as these corrode our comfort and destroy our ease. Hannah Moore. Little did Gertrude imagine, while she was striving most disinterestedly to promote the welfare and happiness of Kitty, who had thrown herself upon her love and care, the jealousy and ill-will she was exciting in others. Isabel, who had never liked one whose whole tone of action and life was a continual reproach to her own vanity and selfishness, and who saw in her the additional crime of being the favored friend of a youth of whose interesting boyhood she herself retained a sentimental recollection, was ready and eager to seize the earliest opportunity of rendering her odious in the eyes of Mrs. Graham. She was not slow to observe the remarkable degree of confidence that seemed to exist between Kitty and Gertrude. She remembered that her cousin had forsaken her own room for that of the latter the very night after her probable quarrel and parting with Bruce and her resentment and anger, excited still farther by the growing friendship which her own coldness and unkindness to Kitty served only to strengthen and confirm, she hastened to communicate to Mrs. Graham her suspicion that Gertrude had, for purposes of her own, made a difficulty between Bruce and Kitty, fostered and widened the breach, and succeeded at last in breaking off the match. Mrs. Graham readily adopted Belle's opinion. Kitty, said she, is weak-minded, and evidently very much under Miss Flint's influence. I shouldn't be surprised if you were right, Belle. Thus leagued together, they endeavored to surprise or entrap Kitty into a confession of the means which had been taken by Gertrude to drive away her lover, and outwit herself. But Kitty, while she indignantly denied Gertrude's having thus injured her, persisted obstinately in refusing to reveal the occurrences of the eventful evening of the wedding levee. It was the first secret Kitty ever did keep, but her woman's pride was involved in the affair, and she preserved it with a care which both honor and wisdom prompted. Mrs. Graham and Bell were now truly angry, and many were the private discussions held by them on the subject, many the vain conjectures which they conjured up, and as day after day they became more and more incensed against Gertrude, so they gradually began to manifest it in their demeanor. Gertrude soon perceived the incivility to which she was constantly subjected. For though, in a great degree independent of their friendship, she could not live under the same roof, without their having frequent opportunities to wound her by their rudeness, which soon became marked, and would have been unendurable to one whose disposition was less thoroughly schooled than Gertrude's. With wonderful patience, however, did she preserve her equanimity. She had never looked for kindness and attention from Mrs. Graham and Isabel. She had seen from the first that between herself and them there could be little sympathy, and now that they manifested open dislike, she struggled to maintain, on her part, not only self-command and composure, but a constant spirit of charity. It was well that she did not yield to this comparatively light trial of her forbearance, for a new, unexpected, and far more intense provocation was in store for her. Her malicious persecutors, incensed and irritated by an unlooked-for calmness and patience, which gave them no advantage in their one-sided warfare, now made their attack in another quarter, and Emily, the sweet, lovely, unoffending Emily, became the object against whom they aimed many of their shafts of unkindness and ill-will. Gertrude could bear injury, injustice, and even hard and cruel language, when exercised towards herself only 
but her blood boiled in her veins when she began to perceive that her cherished Emily was becoming the victim of mean and petty neglect and ill usage. To address the gentle Emily in other words than those of courtesy was next to impossible. It was equally hard to find fault with the actions of one whose life was so good and beautiful, and the somewhat isolated position which she occupied on account of her blindness seemed to render her secure from interference. But Mrs. Graham was coarse and blunt, Isabel selfish and unfeeling, and long before the blind girl was herself aware of any unkind intention on their part, Gertrude's spirit had chafed and rebelled at the sight and knowledge of many a word and act, well calculated, if perceived, to annoy and distress a sensitive and delicate spirit. Many a stroke was warded off by Gertrude, many a neglect atoned for, before it could be felt, many a nearly defeated plan, which Emily was known to have at heart, carried through and accomplished by Gertrude's perseverance and energy, and for some weeks Emily was kept ignorant of the fact that many a little office, formerly performed for her by a servant, was now fulfilled by Gertrude, who would not let her know that Bridget had received from her mistress orders which were quite inconsistent with her usual attendance upon Miss Graham's wants. Mr. Graham was at this time absent from home, some difficulty and anxiety in business matters having called him to New York, at a season when he usually enjoyed his leisure, free from all such cares. His presence would have been a great restraint upon his wife, who was well aware of his devoted affection for his daughter, and his wish that her comfort and case should always be considered of first-rate importance. Indeed, his love and thoughtfulness for Emily, and the enthusiastic devotion manifested towards her by every member of the household, had early rendered her an object of jealousy to Mrs. Graham, who was therefore very willing to find ground of offence against her, and in her case, as in Isabel's, Kitty's desertion to what her aunt and cousin considered the unfriendly party was only a secondary cause of distrust and dislike. The misunderstanding with Mr. Bruce, and their unworthy suspicions of it having been fostered by Gertrude, aided and abetted by Emily, furnished, however, an ostensible motive for the indulgence of their animosity, and one of which they resolved to avail themselves to the utmost. Shortly before Mr. Graham's return home, Mrs. Graham and Isabel were sitting together, endeavouring to while away the tedious hours of a sultry August afternoon, by indulging themselves in an unlimited abuse of the rest of the household, when a letter was brought to Mrs. Graham, which proved to be from her husband. After glancing over its contents, she remarked, with an air of satisfaction, "'Here is good news for us, Isabel, and a prospect of some pleasure in the world.' And she read aloud the following passage. The troublesome affair which called me here is nearly settled, and the result is exceedingly favorable to my wishes and plans. I now see nothing to prevent our starting for Europe the latter part of next month, and the girls must make their arrangements accordingly. Tell Emily to spare nothing towards a full and complete equipment for herself and Gertrude. He speaks of Gertrude, said Isabel sneeringly, as if she were one of the family. I'm sure I don't see any very great prospect of pleasure in travelling all through Europe with a blind woman and her disagreeable appendages. I can't think what Mr. Graham wants to take them for. I wish he would leave them at home, said Mrs. Graham. It would be a good punishment for Gertrude. But mercy, he would as soon think of going without his right hand as without Emily. I hope, if ever I am married, exclaimed Isabel, it won't be to a man that's got a blind daughter. Such a dreadful good person, too whom everybody has got to worship, and admire, and wait upon. "'I don't have to wait upon her,' said Mrs. Graham. "'That's Gertrude's business. It's what she's going for.' 
That's the worst of it. Blind girl has to have a waiting maid, and waiting maid is a great lady, who doesn't mind cheating your nieces out of their lovers, and even robbing them of each other's affection. Well, what can I do, Belle? I'm sure I don't want Gertrude's company any more than you do, but I don't see how I can get rid of her. I should think you'd tell Mr. Graham some of the harm she's done already. If you have any influence over him, you might prevent her going. It would be no more than she deserves, said Mrs. Graham, thoughtfully. And I am not sure, but I shall give him a hint of her behavior. He'll be surprised enough when he hears of Bruce's sudden flight. I know he thought it would be a match between him and Kitty. At this point in the conversation, Isabel was summoned to see visitors, and left her aunt in a mood pregnant with consequences. As Isabel descended the front staircase, to meet with smiles and compliments, the guests whom in her heart she wished a thousand miles away on this intensely hot afternoon, Gertrude came up by the back way from the kitchen, and passed along a passage leading to her own room. She carried over one arm a dress of delicate white muslin, and a number of embroidered collars, sleeves, and ruffles, together with other articles, evidently fresh from the ironing board. Her face was flushed and heated. She looked tired, and, as she reached her room, and carefully deposited her burden upon the bed, she drew a long breath, as if much fatigued, seated herself by a window, brushed the hair back from her face, and threw open a blind, to feel, if possible, a breath of cool air. Just at this moment, Mrs. Prime put her head in at the half-open door, and, seeing Gertrude alone, entered the room, but stood fixed with astonishment on observing the evidences of her recent laborious employment. Then, glancing directly opposite at the fruits of her diligence, she burst forth indignantly, "'My sakes alive! Miss Gertrude, I do believe you've been doing up them muslins yourself, after all.' Gertrude smiled, but did not reply. "'Now, if that ain't too bad,' said the friendly and kind-hearted woman, "'to think you should have been at work down in that air-hot kitchen, and all the rest on us taking a spell of rest in the heat of the day.' All warrant, if Miss Emily knew it, she'd never put on that white gown in this air world. It hardly looks fit for her to wear, said Gertrude. I'm not much used to ironing, and have had a great deal of trouble with it. One side got dry before I could smooth out the other. It looks elegant, Miss Gertrude. But what should you be doing Bridget's work for, I want to know. Bridget always has enough to do, said Gertrude, evading a direct answer. And it's very well for me to have some practice. "'Knowledge never comes amiss, you know, Mrs. Prime. "'Tain't no kind of an afternoon for spearments of that sort, "'and you wouldn't have done it, I'll venture to say, "'if you hadn't been afeard Miss Emily would want her things, "'and find out they weren't done. "'Times has changed in this house, "'when Mr. Graham's own daughter, "'that was once to the head of everything, "'has to have her clothes laid by to make room for other folks. "'Bridget ought to know better than to mind these upstarters, "'when they tell her, as I heard Miss Graham yesterday, "'to let alone that heap of muslins.' and attend to something that was a more consequence. Our Katie would a known better, but Bridget's a newcomer, like all the rest. Thanks I to myself then, what would Miss Gertrude say, if she suspected as how Miss Emily was being neglected? But I'll tell Miss Emily, as sure as my name's Prime, just how things go. You shan't get so red in the face with ironing again, Miss Gertrude. If the kind of frock she likes to wear can't be done up at home, and yourn too, what's more, the washin' ought to be put out. There's money enough, and some of it ought to be spent for the use of the ladies, as is ladies. I wish to heart that Isabella could have to start round a little lively, t'would do her good. But, lor, Miss Gertrude, it goes right to my heart to see all the vexatious things as is happenin' nowadays. I'll go right to Miss Emily this minute and blow my blast. No, you won't, Mrs. Prime, said Gertrude persuasively, when I ask you not to. 
You forget how unhappy it would make her if she knew that Mrs. Graham was so wanting in consideration. I would rather iron dresses every day, or do anything else for our dear Emily, than to let her suspect even that anybody could willingly be unkind to her. Mrs. Prime hesitated. Miss Gertrude, said she, I thought I loved our dear young lady as well as anybody could, but I believe you love her better still, to be so thoughtful and wise-like all for her sake. And I wouldn't say nothing about it. Only I think a sight of you, too. You've been here ever since you was a little gal, and we all set lots by you. And I can't see them folks right over your head, as I know they mean to. I know you love me, Mrs. Prime, and Emily, too. So for the sake of us both, you mustn't say a word to anybody about the change in the family arrangements. We'll all do what we can to keep Emily from pain. And as to the rest, we won't care for ourselves. If they don't pet and indulge me as much as I've been accustomed to, the easiest way is not to notice it. And you mustn't put on your spectacles to see trouble. Lord bless your heart, Miss Gertrude. Them folks is lucky to have you to deal with. It isn't everybody as would put up with them. They don't come much in my way, thank fortune. I let Miss Graham see right off that I wouldn't put up with interference. Cooks is privileged to set up for their rights. And I scared her out of my premises pretty quick, I'll tell yer. It's mighty hard for me to see our own ladies imposed upon. But since you say mum, Miss Gertrude, I'll try and hold my tongue as long as I can. It's a shame, though, I do declare. And Mrs. Prime walked off, muttering to herself. An hour after, Gertrude was at the glass, braiding up the bands of her long hair. When Mrs. Ellis, after a slight knock at the door, entered. Well, Gertrude, said she, I didn't think it would come to this. Why, what is the matter? inquired Gertrude, anxiously. It seems we are going to be turned out of our rooms. Who? You, and I next, for all I know. Gertrude colored, but did not speak. And Mrs. Ellis went on to relate that she had just received orders to fit up Gertrude's room for some visitors who were expected the next day. She was astonished to hear that Gertrude had not been consulted on the subject. Mrs. Graham had spoken so carelessly of her removal, and seemed to think it so mutually agreeable for Emily to share her apartment with her young friend, that Mrs. Ellis concluded the matter had been prearranged. Deeply wounded and vexed, both on her own and Emily's account, Gertrude stood for a moment silent and irresolute. She then asked if Mrs. Ellis had spoken to Emily on the subject. She had not. Gertrude begged her to say nothing about it. I cannot bear, said she, to let her know that the little sanctum she fitted up so carefully has been unceremoniously taken from me. I sleep in her room more than half the time, as you know, but she always likes to have me call this chamber mine, that I may be sure of a place where I can read and study by myself. If you will let me remove my bureau into your room, Mrs. Ellis, and sleep on the couch there occasionally, we need not say anything about it to Emily. Mrs. Ellis assented. She had grown strangely humble and compliant within a few months and Gertrude had completely won her goodwill, first by forbearance, and latterly by the frequent favors and assistance she had found it in her power to render the overburdened housekeeper. So she made no objection to receive her into her room as an inmate, and even offered to assist in the removal of her wardrobe, work-table, and books. But though yielding and considerate towards Gertrude, whom, with Emily and Mrs. Prime, she now considered members of the oppressed and injured party, to which she herself belonged, no words could express her indignation with regard to the late behavior of Mrs. Graham and Isabel. It is all of a piece, said she, with the rest of their conduct. Sometimes I almost feel thankful that Emily is blind. It would grieve her so to see the goings-on. 
I should have liked to box Isabella's ears for taking your seat at the table, so impudently as she did yesterday, and then neglecting to help Emily to anything at all. And there sat dear Emily, angel as she is, all unconscious of her shameful behavior, and asking her for butter, as sweetly as if it were by mere accident that you had been driven from the table, and she left to provide for herself. And all those strangers there, too. I saw it all from the china closet. And then Emily's dresses and muslins. There they laid in the press drawer, till I thought they would mildew. I'm glad to see Bridget has been allowed to do them at last, for I began to think Emily would one of these warm days be without a clean gown in the world. But there, it's no use talking about it. All I wish is that they'd all go off to Europe and leave us here to ourselves. You don't want to go, do you, Gertrude? Yes, if Emily goes. Well, you're better than I am. I couldn't make such a martyr of myself, even for her sake. It is needless to detail the many petty annoyances to which Gertrude was daily subjected, especially after the arrival of the expected visitors, a gay and thoughtless party of fashionables, who were taught to look upon her as an unwarrantable intruder, and upon Emily as a troublesome encumbrance. Nor, with all the pains taken to prevent it, could Emily be long kept in ignorance of the light estimation in which both herself and Gertrude were regarded. Kitty, incensed at the incivility of her aunt and Isabel, and indifferent towards the visitors, to whose folly and levity of character her eyes were now partially opened, hesitated not to express both to Emily and Gertrude her sense of the injuries they sustained, and her own desire to act in their defence. But Kitty was no formidable antagonist to Mrs. Graham and Bell, for her spirits greatly subdued, and her fears constantly excited by her cousin's sarcastic looks and speeches. She had become a sad coward, and no longer dared, as she would once have done, to thwart their schemes, and stand between her friends and the indignities to which they were exposed. But Mrs. Graham, thoughtless woman, went too far, and became at last entangled in difficulties of her own weaving. Her husband returned, and it now became necessary to set bounds to her own insolence, and what was far more difficult, to that of Isabel. Mrs. Graham was a woman of tact. She knew just how far her husband's forbearance would extend just the point to which his perceptions might be blinded, and had also sufficient self-control to check herself in any course which would be likely to prove obnoxious to his imperious will. In his absence, however, she acted without restraint, permitted Belle to fill the house with her lively young acquaintances, and winked at the many open and flagrant violations of the law of politeness, manifested by the young people towards the daughter of their absent host, and her youthful friend and attendant. Now, however, a check must be put to all indecorous proceedings, and, unfortunately for the execution of the wife's wise precautions, the head of the family returned unexpectedly, and under circumstances which forestalled any preparation or warning. He arrived just at dusk, having come from town in an omnibus, which was quite contrary to his usual custom. It was a cool evening, the windows and the doors of the house were closed, and the parlour was so brilliantly lighted that he at once suspected the truth that a large company was being entertained there. He felt vexed, for it was Saturday night, and, in accordance with old New England customs, Mr. Graham loved to see his household quiet on that evening. He was, moreover, suffering from a violent headache, and avoiding the parlour, he passed on to the library, and then to the dining-room. Both were chilly and deserted. He then made his way upstairs, walked through several rooms, glanced indignantly at their disordered and slovenly appearance, for he was excessively neat, and finally gained Emily's chamber. He opened the door noiselessly and looked in. A bright wood fire burned upon the hearth, a couch was drawn up beside it, 
on which Emily was sitting, and Gertrude's little rocking-chair occupied the opposite corner. The firelight reflected upon the white curtains, the fragrant perfume which proceeded from a basket of flowers upon the table, the perfect neatness and order of the apartment, the placid, peaceful face of Emily, and the radiant expression of Gertrude's countenance, as she looked up and saw the father and protector of her blind friend looking pleasantly in upon them, proved such a charming contrast to the scenes presented in other parts of the house, that the old gentleman, warmed to more than usual satisfaction with both of the inmates, greeted his surprised daughter with a hearty paternal embrace, and bestowing upon Gertrude an equally affectionate greeting, exclaimed, as he took the armchair which the latter wheeled in front of the fire for his accommodation, "'Now, girls, this looks pleasant and homelike. What in the world is going on downstairs? What is everything up in arms about?' Emily explained that there was company staying in the house. "'Ugh, company,' grunted Mr. Graham, in a dissatisfied tone. "'I should think so. Been emptying rag-bags about the chambers, I should say, from the looks.' Gertrude asked if he had been to tea. He had not, and should be thankful for some. He was tired. So she went downstairs to see about it. "'Don't tell anybody that I've got home, Gertie,' called he, as she left the room. "'I want to be left in peace, to-night at least.' While Gertrude was gone, Mr. Graham questioned Emily as to her preparations for the European tour. To his surprise, he learned that she had never received his message communicated in the letter to Mrs. Graham, and knew nothing of his plans. Equally astonished and angry, he nevertheless restrained his temper for the present. He did not like to acknowledge to himself, far less to his daughter, that his commands had been disregarded by his wife. It put him upon thinking, however— after he had enjoyed a comfortable repast, at which Gertrude presided, they both returned to Emily's room, and now Mr. Graham's first inquiry was for the evening transcript. "'I will go for it,' said Gertrude, rising. "'Ring,' said Mr. Graham, imperatively. He had observed at the tea-table that Gertrude's ring was disregarded, and wished to know the cause of so strange a piece of neglect. Gertrude rang several times, but obtained no answer to the bell." At last she heard Bridget's step in the entry, and, opening the door, said to her, "'Bridget, won't you find the transcript and bring it to Miss Emily's room?' Bridget soon returned, with the announcement that Miss Isabella was reading it, and declined to give it up. A storm gathered on Mr. Graham's brow. "'Such a message to my daughter!' he exclaimed. "'Gertrude, go yourself, and tell the impertinent girl that I want the paper.' "'What sort of behavior is this?' muttered he. Gertrude entered the parlor with great composure and, amid the stairs and wonder of the company, spoke in a low tone to Belle, who immediately yielded up the paper, blushing, and looking much confused as she did so. Belle was afraid of Mr. Graham, and on her informing her aunt of his return, it was that lady's turn, also, to look disconcerted. She had fully calculated upon seeing her husband before he had access to Emily. She knew the importance of giving the desired bias to a man of his strong prejudices." but it was too late now. She would not go to seek him. She must take her chance, and trust to fortune to befriend her. She used all her tact, however, to disperse her friends at an early hour, and then found Mr. Graham smoking in the dining-room. He was in an unpleasant mood, as she told her niece afterwards, cross as a bear, but she contrived to conciliate rather than irritate him, avoided all discordant subjects, and was able the next morning to introduce to her friends an apparently affable and obliging host. This serenity was disturbed, however, long before the Sabbath drew to a close. As he walked up the church aisle, before morning service, with Emily, according to his invariable custom, leaning upon his arm, 
His brow darkened at seeing Isabel complacently seated in that corner of the old-fashioned square pew, which all the family were well aware had for years been sacred to his blind daughter. Mrs. Graham, who accompanied them, winked at her niece. But Isabel was mentally rather obtuse, and was, consequently, subjected to the mortification of having Mr. Graham deliberately take her hand and remove her from the seat, in which he immediately placed Emily while the displaced occupant, who had been so mean as for the last three Sundays to purposely deprive Miss Graham of this old established right, was compelled to sit during the service in the only vacant place, beside Mr. Graham, with her back to the pulpit. And very angry was she at observing the smiles visible upon many countenances in the neighboring pews, and especially chagrined, when Fanny Bruce, who was close to her in the next pew, giggled outright. Emily would have been grieved if she had been in the least aware of the triumph she had unconsciously achieved. But her heart and thoughts were turned upward, and, as she had felt no pang of provocation at Isabel's past encroachment, so had she no consciousness of present satisfaction, except as the force of habit made her feel more at ease in her old seat. Mr. Graham had not been at home a week before he understood plainly the existing state of feeling in the mind of his wife and Isabel and the manner in which it was likely to act upon the happiness of the household. He saw that Emily was superior to complaint. He knew that she had never in her life complained. He observed, too, Gertrude's devotion to his much-loved child, and it stamped her in his mind as one who had a claim to his regard which should never be disputed. It is not, then, to be wondered at, that when, with much art and many plausible words, Mrs. Graham made her intended insinuations against his youthful protégé, Mr. Graham treated them with indifference and contempt. He had known Gertrude from a child. She was high-spirited. He had sometimes thought her willful, but never mean or false. It was no use to tell him all that nonsense. He was glad, for his part, that it was all off between Kitty and Bruce, for Ben was an idle fellow, and would never make a good husband. And as to Kitty, he thought her much improved of late, and if it were owing to Gertrude's influence, the more they saw of each other, the better." Mrs. Graham was in despair. "'It is all settled,' said she to Isabel. "'It is no use to contest the point. Mr. Graham is firm as a rock, and as sure as we go to Europe, Emily and Gertrude will go too.' She was almost startled, therefore, by what she considered an excess of good luck, when informed, a few days afterwards, that the couple she had so dreaded to have of the party were in reality to be left behind, and that, too, at Miss Graham's special request.' Emily's scruples with regard to mentioning to her father the little prospect of pleasure the tour was likely to afford her all vanished when she found that Gertrude, whose interest she ever had at heart, would be likely to prove a still greater sufferer from the society to which she would be subjected. Blind as she was, Emily understood and perceived almost everything that was passing around her. Quick of perception, and with a hearing rendered doubly intense by her want of sight, the events of the summer were, perhaps, more familiar to her than to any other member of the family. She more than suspected the exact state of matters betwixt Mr. Bruce and Gertrude, though the latter had never spoken to her on the subject. She imagined the matter in which Kitty was involved in the affair, no very difficult thing to be conceived by one who enjoyed the confidences which the simple-hearted girl unconsciously, but continually, made during her late intercourse with her. As Mrs. Graham's and Isabel's abuse of power became more open and decided, 
Mrs. Ellis and Mrs. Prime both considered the embargo upon free speech in Miss Graham's presence wholly removed, and any pain which the knowledge of their neglect might have caused her was more than compensated to Emily by the proofs it had called forth of devoted attachment and willing service on the part of her adopted child, as she loved to consider Gertrude. Calmly and without hesitation, as without excitement, did she resolve to adopt a course which should at once free Gertrude from her self-sacrificing service that she encountered much opposition from her father may well be imagined but he knew too well the impossibility of any pleasure to be derived to herself from a tour in which mental pain was added to outward deprivation to persist in urging her to accompany the party and concluding at last that it was after all the only way to reconcile opposing interests and that emily's plan was perhaps the best that could be adopted under the circumstances decided to resign himself to the long separation from his daughter, and permit her to be happy in her own way. He had seen, during the previous winter at the South, how entirely Emily's infirmity unfitted her for travelling, especially when deprived of Gertrude's attendant eyes. He now realized how totally contrary to her tastes and habits were the tastes and habits of his new wife and her nieces. And unwilling to be convinced of the folly of his sudden choice, and the probable chance of unhappiness arising from it, he appreciated the wisdom of Emily's proposal, and felt a sense of relief in the adoption of a course which would satisfy all parties. End of chapter 33